0: I'm Russ White. This is MSU Today, and it's a pleasure to welcome Emilio Moran to the program. He's a John A. Hanna Distinguished Professor at Michigan State University. Emilio, welcome to the program. It's nice to be here. Could you tell us a little bit about your research interests? What do you like to research? What are you working on?
1: Well, I've been working for several decades, uh, mostly in the Amazon, but I've also worked in Africa and other countries besides Brazil. I've worked on agriculture. I've worked on what is known as land use land cover change. I've worked on migration and demography, uh, and for my work is probably best known. And why I was elected to the National yeah. Academy of Science for my work, which for the first time uh, you used remote sensing in order to examine very small uh, fields in farms to understand how people make decisions about how much rainforest to cut, how much to cultivate. And so that became a a focus of my work. And also I studied what happens after you deforest the rainforest. I studied what is the rate of secondary growth after you deforest the rainforest as a function of the soils and as a function of the kind of use that you made of that uh, area that used to be forest during the agricultural period. So that consumed my interest and that was, at the time I did it, fairly new. Nobody had actually studied re- secondary growth from space. Uh, of course, we studied it from, with space data from satellite, Landsat, but we also studied on the ground. We spent a lot of time in the field uh, checking out what's there really, because all you see in satellite data are pixels and you see you know, digital data. You don't see the forest, you see just the little dots. So you have to interpret what the dots mean. And so we spent a lot of time on the ground trying to figure out for this particular spot, you know, what's here? Is, is it a cocoa plantation? Is it corn? Is it beans? Is it, you know, secondary growth? Uh, and then we were able, you know, after 10 years to do for the first time, uh, be able to follow that rate of regrowth. And that, I think that's why I was elected to the National Academy. Uh, and that was work done in the 90s and early 2000s. Uh, and then uh, what I'm going to be talking about with trustees on next Friday is new work that I've done uh, really since I came to Michigan State. Uh, in the same region where I had been working for several decades on issues of land use and deforestation and demographic change, uh, they started building the biggest dam in hydroelectric dam in, uh, in Brazil, uh, the third largest in the world. And so right in the backyard where I was doing my agricultural and environmental work so to me, it was just irresistible. I, mean, uh, I first went to the Amazon because they were building the first highway across the Amazon Basin. You know, a big infrastructure project. I didn't call it that back then, but I realized now that's what it was—a huge, you know, three thousand mile highway cutting for the first time the Amazon open to migration and development. And that's what I studied for you know for the last three decades, and then. Uh, I realized that dam building had been going on in Brazil for some time, uh, about 30 years, but it had just really begun to be a big thing in the Amazon. And here is the biggest one of all being built right in my backyard in a sense, because that was my second home. Uh, and so I felt I, I just had to study it. Uh, and that led me to all kinds of new things. I mean, the earlier work took me to agronomy, Ecology, you know, deforestation, agriculture. This new work is taking me to engineering, and so uh, I began to look for engineers here at Michigan State that might help me with this new project that I conceived. And I applied and got funding from the National Science Foundation to study what are the social and environmental impacts of the construction of this largest of the dams in. Um, in Brazil in the Amazon. Uh, So I was successful in getting that funding. Uh, I I brought in not only the engineers, a turbine engineer and environmental engineers to help me with that. I brought into the team people from hydrogeology because we wanna understand the whole hydrology of the Amazon basin, uh, because that's what they're trying to tap into. They're trying to tap into the water as a source of energy. So we want to understand, you know, what's that involved. And the other thing is we were trying to, we began by questioning. In fact, the title of that proposal to NSF that was successful, a $2.5 million grant, uh, was rethinking dams. You know, how can we have sustainable power for communities uh, in the region? And the reason for rethinking is that I've worked there for a long time and I realized that the only other previous dams in the region, uh, the energy didn't go to the people who were most profoundly affected by the dam. Those people were resettled. Uh, Those people lost their homes, you know, through flooding in the reservoir. They, They never got land of comparable quality to what they had before. They often became impoverished. They lost their fishing livelihoods because they lived by the river. And, and how is it possible that you build these big structures to produce energy, and then you forget the people who are most profoundly affected? So I began to, to say, okay, let's, let's rethink this, which is why, which is why I, I brought in the engineer, a turbine engineer into it. And my charge to the engineer was uh let's work on something else i had read about some experimental uh in-stream turbines in oregon uh not commercialized yet at that point when i first read about it and i said well why can't we do something like that for the amazon where we can you know develop some kind of generator that goes in the water doesn't require damming up the river that will produce energy for the nearby community, not for the national grid, just for the local people who don't have the energy. Uh, that will be a revolutionary. And then, and then, can we do it without killing the fish? I every time we met every month during our project, we at my first, I, well, I would turn to the engineers and say, "Remember, we don't want to make sushi," uh, and uh, that's. That's what made it exciting. It's a new kind of what I call reverse engineering. In other words, we're not trying to have the most efficient turbine in the world. We're trying to find the one that's most fish friendly and still produces enough energy for people. So that's what we've been working on for the last five years. And that's mostly what I will be talking about in uh, the trustees meeting next Friday. Uh, We just got funded in October for a new project that, Kind of piggybacks on that one. But when, again, we just getting started. We just had a, one or two meetings to get to know each other. And that's going to basically try to develop the prototype to put on the communities and work with the community to modify the technology to meet their needs. It's actually, you know, the other one was designing the technology. Uh, this one is to implement, you know, the yeah. the actual technology yes. on the ground. But I can't talk about it because, I mean, other than You know, it's, I know what I want to do for the next, it's a five-year grant for 3.2 million. I know what we want to do, but you know, we just got it. Uh, I'll be talking about what we have done in the last uh, four years.
0: I'm talking with Amelia Moran on MSU Today. He's a John A. Hanna Distinguished Professor at Michigan State University and a member of the United States National Academy of Sciences. And you started to uh, talk about some of it, Dr. Moran, but a little bit more on what you've found so far, what questions you still hope to answer with this research?
1: Well, uh, we found, but there are many dimensions to this work. I mean the turbine is the, you know, the thing we want to deliver at the end. Uh, something very practical, usable, that uh, people can, can be given energy for, you know. How can we serve off-grid communities anywhere in the world? We just you know, again, because I have credibility of working in the Amazon for so many, so many years, uh, you know, people believe me when I say I can, I can do this. Uh, most people can't, can't do it. I mean, it's too hard a place to work, but people believe that I can do it. I've done it for a long, long time. Uh, I've published a great deal and everybody has to kind of uh, refer to my work if they're going to work in the Amazon pretty much. Uh, and uh but we found you know a lot of things we found some of the things that i mentioned the, the uh you know just how much the people who are building the dams uh uh betray the populations that they are supposed to be serving in other words they are they're promised uh energy they're promised jobs uh they're promised uh uh you know, a better quality of life, better water, better sanitation. All those things are promises made to get people to not fight against the dam coming. And the people generally, you know, believe that these very powerful people can deliver that to them. So, but we found that, in fact, in this dam, it's one of the biggest nightmares of all the dams, in fact, because it is so big. Uh, you know, there were 22,000 people that had to be resettled they were resettled you know, far away from the river. So all those people who are living off the river through fishing and other activities suddenly get put in a community that's built for them. And nice nice houses, sure, but too far away from where they can make a living. At the beginning for the first two years, they didn't even have bus service to the community. So they have to pay taxis if they want to get out to, to the bank or to, to a grocery store. Uh, they, they didn't have a school in the community. And it's a big community. Uh, they needed a school in there for at least primary level. They didn't have a school. People had to walk a long, long way if they wanted to go to school. Um, they had a, you know, underserved uh, medical uh, post where they can go and get looked at if they had a problem. Uh, there was no retraining of people for a new job uh, that they could have so the, the social part of the project got into all the social impacts and then we got into the environmental impacts we look at the fisheries we hired a postdoc who's a fishery ecologist and then we found again how the decline you know radical decline not only in fish amounts but in fish diversity because some of the the, fir- the first fish would disappear when you build a dam are the big ones this, you know the big catfish i'm talking about you know six feet long, catfishes. And that was the lifeblood of of the fishermen because they're easy to catch, they're big, and they bring a lot of money to the fishermen. Suddenly those, but those are all migrating species. You put a dam and they can't migrate anymore and you break their spawning behavior like you do with salmon. You know, this has happened in a lot of rivers in North America with salmon, you block their migration, suddenly so your salmon population collapses. Well, here you have, you know, hundreds of species. You know, you, here we, you know, we cry about salmon, but, you know, they got hundreds of species in the Amazon that suddenly are, start disappearing. I mean, there's one river that we have been studying in this project that before the dam was built, they documented 1,047 species of fish. It's the most biodiverse river in the world by far, twice as much as even the Mekong, for example, or the Congo in Africa. And they put up two dams in it. Well, now you no longer have any of the catfish. Uh, you don't have that famous Peter the fish, which is two and a half m- meters long. And, uh, you know, you, you can go and look at it at the Washington Zoo. Uh, but is disappearing, and if you find any, they're tiny, uh, and only in some small affluent where it has survived. But the big ones which take advantage of the big river and all the big sediment and rich uh, nutrients on the big channel of the river disappear. Uh, So I mean, there are all these dimensions, You know, fissures, collapses, that people's lives are made worse. They promised them clean water and sanitation. Well, I had a student doing her, her doctorate, on water and sanitation, and she shows how the, the building company violated the law. Uh, for they're supposed to improve the water and sanitation whenever they build a, a big infrastructure, well, they, they didn't. Uh, they kept trying not to fulfill the promise it made on something that basic for the community. Uh, And so um, there are these other social environmental impacts that we were studying as well. And uh, and of course we made recommendations about what could be done better. I mean, they need to prepare communities for a dam like that. I mean, you you need to give them two years to have the governments of state, local, state, federal, get ready to provide all that is needed to soften the shock of such a big infrastructure project coming to your community. You can't just arrive and do it afterwards. It's too late.
0: Well, Dr. Moran, let me ask you, as as the projects move forward in your research, what are sort of some challenges and some
1: opportunities maybe on the horizon? Well, the opportunity is that we have in this project that uh, we're in the final year of, the the engineers have done some very good estimation of this technology's potential. Uh, We found that just putting solar panels Uh, floating on the reservoirs that already exist, on existing dams, in the Amazon, uh, just 10% of of the reservoir covering panels could generate 30 gigawatts of power, which is more than twice the amount of power that is planned to be produced with dams in the next 10 years. So, there is a solution that doesn't require dams. That's really what we're, tra- what we're trying to get to in, in our project. Here's a solution, floating panels. You know, we did not invent that idea. I mean, there are, uh, there are Japanese floating panels not for several years. There are some in the UK. Uh, there are some in Brazil uh, in small areas as exper- experimental floating panels. It does work. Uh, people are just not thinking big enough that this could actually replace dams without any of those damaging things that are associated with dams. I mean, just float them on already existing dams. You don't have to build anything new in order to get that 30 gigawatts of energy, which is a lot. Uh, Another solution is if we only think of the in-stream turbines that we have developed, that we can generate 63% of the total energy that's planned to be generated by conventional hydropower uh, in the next 10, 15 years using in-stream turbines. So, again, a combination, actually we're promoting actually a combination of photovoltaics and in-stream turbines, and we can generate as much or more power than is planned with conventional hydropower. So these are ways that we can prevent any future damages to the Amazon rivers and biodiversity. And we can still meet the needs of Brazil to have energy for its economic development. And even better, some of these energy can be given to local people, which currently they are overlooked by the conventional hydropower. So, and we see this as a solution, not just for Brazil and the Amazon, but this is a solution for all people who are off the grid, who are near, some kind of water body, uh, and who are near a stream, because you don't require that much current to generate sufficient power to do this. And so I think we can uh, address the needs of 650 million people across the world that are currently off the grid, who are currently not served uh, except by some very Expensive energy sources like diesel generators, which is if they have power, that's what they tend to have, which is dirty. Uh, It's a a very dirty fossil fuel and it's very expensive usually. Uh, People only get power for three to four hours a day uh, from those sources because it's so expensive. We could generate 24 hour a day power with these uh, solutions that we're proposing. So, We're excited about the potential. Now, the challenge ahead is how can we convince uh, Brazil and the energy sector in Brazil that this is doable, that they should be moving in this direction. And they should because Brazil is the most dependent country on hydropower. I mean, a few years ago, they were 80% dependent on hydropower for all their electrical consumption. They got that down to 67%. But solar is still less than 1% in Brazil of their energy needs. And wind power is increasing rapidly, uh, but they're still, and they already outcompete small small hydro, conventional hydropower, which is a favorite thing across the world, just smaller smaller dams. But smaller dams, you know, do as much damage as the big dams. I mean, they block the river. So the fish still cannot get through. Uh, and so uh, the damage can actually be worse from having 14, 15 small, conventional dams uh, compared to a big dam. And in fact, that's a, in, our, in another project that I have, we're working on investigating, comparing a string of, of small hydropower dams with, uh, with the big ones to see which one actually has more damage. And we are, we'll be doing that for the next three or four years.
0: When you present to a group like the Board of Trustees, are there a couple of messages you hope they take away or that you want to
1: get across to people about this project and your work? Support science, I mean, uh, and let people, let people, you know, encourage them to innovate, uh, not to think inside the box. I mean, it's so easy. I mean, we've been building hydropower dams for a long, long time since, since uh, the turn of the, of the, of the other century. Uh, in fact, the first the first dam was built uh, in Grand Rapids, Michigan. So we have a history of of building dams. We have over two thousand dams in Michigan at the moment. Uh, uh, many of them hydropower, not all of them. And uh, in fact, we are we are starting to look at at Michigan as as an object of study. Possibly, we're looking for the right place in which to do it. Uh, but you know. We have a big problem in, in Michigan. We, most of those dams were built in the 30s. They are already 20 to 30 years past their expected lifetime. Most of them are, by the evaluation of the people who monitor dams in Michigan, they're considered to be dangerous. They're considered to be high risk dams. We already had a breach recently uh, in central Michigan and you know, communities that were flooded near Sanford, uh, and this is going to happen more and more. And I'm just amazed that so little is being done to address the problem. Uh, everybody somehow is comfortably enjoying the reservoir for their recreational activity, not thinking that all those, a lot of those reservoirs are high-risk dams that are likely to breach unless either we invest a lot of money in fixing them, or we spend a lot of money removing them. But as they stand, it is a high risk situation for human life, for human property. And I think our research is, offers a solution again. Um, it does solve the problem of having a, a pretty lake in which to, to boat on. But if, if what we want is hydropower, sustainable energy source, we have this this technology can do it. Uh, and at some point we even discuss in our group, can we put our our turbine uh, in uh, Old Town in Lansing as a demonstration to show people that this is possible? Because there used to be a hydropower dam there in Old Town. It no longer generates power, it's, it's too old. Uh, but even putting something in the same place to show that we can generate power for Old Town, for example, is something that we might we might undertake if we had the resources to uh, undertake it. I would hope that maybe maybe a trustees or somebody else might decide that this would be a good investment for, for Michigan uh, that would take us in a direction that would be safer for our citizens and that would put us at the forefront of new technology for the nation.
0: Well, uh, Dr. Moran, it's comforting to know you're working on this problem, though I can... Sense your passion and really appreciate all your great uh, Spartans will work and telling us about it today.
1: Yeah, I think, I think M- MSU was a good fit for me. Uh, I'm, whatever I do, I'm very passionate about. Uh, and so, uh, I, I have jumped with both feet into this, uh, hydropower debate and, and solutions. And, uh, I think, uh, it's something that can apply over most of the United States. Uh, and, uh, which still we're mostly thinking of small dams as opposed to having some other way to get that power.
0: Well, that's Amelia Moran. He's a John A. Hanna Distinguished Professor at Michigan State University and a member of the United States National Academy of Sciences. And I'm Russ White. This is MSU Today.